Thanks for joining us here in Centralia, Illinois, where we are a community of people who are not perfect and don't pretend to be. Our hope and prayer is that through the following message, you are encouraged, blessed, and inspired to meet the Lord in a powerful way. And so here we are in week three of the series called Fearless. And if, if this is your first time in week number one, we talked about uh, how that we can be fearless in our faith. And we had that example in Daniel chapter six and, and Daniel's experience in the lion's den. And the lesson that we, one of the lessons that we should have walked away with is this, that evil people are going to do what evil people do. But even when they do that, we are still to remain faithful. Then last week I shared with you one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and and that's about Gideon. And I talked about being fearless in new opportunities, or as I like to put it, surprise. You know, sometimes the surprises, we get to choose, are they an opportunity or are they a problem? And it's easy for us to identify the problem part of that equation, but God wants us to see the opportunities because it's in those opportunities that God wants to use you to solve a problem, and it probably had nothing to do with what you're going through. And so this week, we are in the finale of this three-week series of being fearless, and I want to talk to you about being fearless in second chances. Has anyone ever been given a second chance? Yeah, you know what? I was given, I mean, I've experienced many chances, um, but there's one, when I think about second chances, I think about all the way back in 1989. Say, that's a long time ago. Long time ago. And in 1989, um, I didn't know certain things about myself. All right, I was 19 years old. I didn't know what I didn't know. I was pretty dumb. And, and so... Um, Last, well, yeah, last uh, weekend, uh, we had a relationship upgrade workshop here, uh, right here in the, in the worship center. And as part of that workshop, we all took a strengths survey. And one of my, and, and it, it lists 24 different strengths. Um, if you came to the uh, relationship workshop and you enjoyed that, will you let everyone know it, it wasn't that bad? Yeah. Well, what was really fascinating was um, this past Friday, sitting down with a couple, and not only did they take the strength survey, but when they got home, they made all their kids take the strength survey, and they learned some things about their family. Well, remember I told you I was 19 years old, and I didn't know what I didn't know, and I didn't know that one day I'd take that strength survey, and, and out of the 25 strengths, my number 24 out of 24 was the appreciation of beauty. What that means is I don't like to go to museums. I don't uh, see value in monuments that are sitting there. And here I was in July of 1989. I'm at Fort Monroe, Virginia. My dad is taking me on a tour of this. And, And I still remember... Um, walking and seeing the cannons that were still in place that, that protected the waterway from any ships that might try to approach the land. And my dad's telling me about these things. And again, remember, I was 
19 and I didn't know what I didn't know and I was really dumb. And my dad, he's, he's into this. And, and this isn't normal for my dad. And, and, and I missed it. And so he's, he's excited. And he looks over at me and he sees that I'm not. And he says, he goes, you're not interested in this, are you? And remember, I, I was 19 and I was dumb. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And when he asked that question, I, I said, no, I'm not. And I just saw him deflate. I said, no, 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 let's, let's try this again, Dad, you know. It was over. No more tour. No more conversation. We went and had lunch. Fifteen years later, I'm not as dumb I had taken this survey, and I knew that appreciation of beauty was at the bottom. And my dad wanted to take me to a museum. Now, folks, I'm just going to be honest with you. I didn't want to go to the museum. But see, I'd learned a lesson back in 1989. And that lesson was, when my dad wants to go to a museum, I'm going to want to go. And so the next thing I know, we're in the car and we're driving and we pull off the highway. And I really didn't know anything about the museum that we're going to, but he was taking me to Green Bank, West Virginia. Now, you may not know this, but Green Bank, West Virginia is in the center of a 13,000 square mile radio free zone. And if it's radio free, you know what else it's free of? Cellular. Wi-Fi. This town of 200 people, uh, when you think about it, hey, it's a radio-free zone, probably backwards when it comes to technology, was one of the most advanced technology towns in the world because in that town sat 18 different satellites that peered out into space. And so as we're going through that museum, I mean, I am just everything Dad's looking at and he's excited about, I'm looking at and I'm getting excited about it. Why? Because I learned my lesson. I'd been given a second chance. And then what I noticed was that um, one of the displays had this, it was called Drake's Equation. Now, Drake's Equation, if you're not a scientist or you don't like science, it probably means nothing to you. But this equation's a, a rather long equation. And, and basically, what they were doing was they believed that there was life out there. And, and this guy by the name of Drake came up with this equation where there's seven different um, parts to it or factors. And when you combined all those, it would give them the likelihood of encountering life out there. And so as you see that equation, uh, it's a rather long one. And, and so the first component of this is, uh, uh, it says R, and it's the rate of formation of stars. And so that's something that science believes that they have a good grasp on, a good understanding of. And the second factor was the fraction of those stars that had planetary systems. And so they, they think, well, you know what, we've got a good idea, we can put a number there. And then the third factor was the number of planets per solar system with an environment that life could live on. 
Okay, well, they could tell that through a satellite by looking to see if, if, if it could sustain life. If they could find water, they knew it could sustain life. Well, then, all three of those, those are, they, they are confident that they can get a, a rather close number to, to what should be in there. And, and the next one was kind of easy because the fraction of suitable planets on which life actually appears well, they, they think that if, if it can sustain life, then life is going to appear on there. So that's, that's just a number one. But then we get into the gray area. And you know science doesn't do well in the gray area, right? Well, well here's the gray area. Then they have the fraction of life-bearing planets on which intelligent life emerges. Now remember, this whole equation was to determine, is there intelligent life out there? And one of the factors that they need is to know how many of the different planets actually has intelligent life on it. And, and, and any scientist will tell you, well, we don't, we can't, you know, we can guess. Well, the next factor is the fraction of civilizations that develop a technology that releases detectable signs of the existence in the space. Again, can't do it. There's no way for them to come up with a number there. Not even a good guess. And then the last component was this. The length of time such civilizations release detectable, let me say this, release undetected detectable signals into space. And so as, as I look at this, Drake's equation, and, and basically they put numbers in there, and they believe that there's a million different civilizations out there somewhere trying to communicate with us. Now, no one has ever tried to re really communicate with us successfully. But scientists that follow this Drake's equation believe that there's a million life forms out there that are trying to communicate to us. I mean, these are smart people. These are really smart people. These are the kind of people when you're having dinner with them, they're talking about things and you don't get it. You ask a question and you still don't get it. I mean, really, big brain, smart people. And they're putting their faith in an equation that has seven factors and four of them they cannot give you a number for. This is what scientists would call a trophy of science, this equation. I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, it, it, you know, the possibility that we could discover life out there. It's a, a science of trophy. Well, you know, when I look at God's Word, I, I think of trophies of grace. You know, one trophy of grace that, that I think of is, is a guy by the name of Moses. Oh, man, Moses was saved from being wiped out along with all the other children. He was raised in Pharaoh's home. He was convinced that it was his calling on his life to free his children from Egyptian bondage. And when he's 40 years old, he decides to do it. And he ends up murdering somebody. And he ends up running off into the wilderness to save his life. And yet, 40 years later, God gave him a second chance. And 40 years later, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. 
Well, another trophy of grace that I think about in Scripture is a guy by the name of David. Oh, David, a man after God's own heart. But some of you thought about the other side of David, the adulterer, the murderer, the scoundrel. And yet God used David for so many victories. God gave David a lot of chances. See, David is a trophy of grace. Maybe my favorite trophy of grace in the New Testament is a guy by the name of Peter. You know Peter, the guy that had foot and mouth disease. I mean, oh, he, he, could, he could make a promise, couldn't he? And he had a hard time following through on that promise. But you know what? Every time that he failed, Jesus gave him another chance. Well, today I want to I share with you another trophy of grace, maybe the ultimate trophy of grace in Scripture, and it's a guy by the name of Jonah. If you've got your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to open up to the book of Jonah and find chapter 3. And if uh, you don't have a Bible, if you look underneath in front of you, those chairs, there's Bibles there. And if you grab one of those, if you turn to page 954, you will be right there in lockstep with me. Page 954 in Jonah chapter 3. And maybe the most powerful words that we can read in Scripture that can give us hope and, and you know about Jonah, right? Jonah was the prophet of God. Jonah was the guy that God said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach their destruction. And Jonah said, I'm on my way to Tarshish, the opposite direction of Nineveh. I'm not going, God. And then he hid out in the boat and they took off and, and the Bible tells us that God sent a storm. How many of y'all have been through a storm and you know it was God? Amen. I mean, there was no doubt in it. That was God getting your attention. Well, in this case, God got Jonah's attention. Oh, he got Jonah's attention. He got Jonah's attention. He got the sailor's attention. They're throwing everything off to try to keep... The, the boat on top of the water. And then finally, uh, they find him sleeping. And so they ask him, what are you doing? You know, pray to your God. And then they drew lots, and it winded up on Jonah. And they're like, Jonah, I mean, what did you do? Who are you? What's going on? And he tells the story. And they go, well, what should we do? And he says, throw me overboard. You know what he was wanting to do? He's wanting to die. He's wanting to get it over with. All right, God, you got me. I don't know what else to do. I mean, I ran as far as I could from you, and you showed up. Ah, just throw me over, guys. It'll be over with soon. That's what he's telling himself. And so they did it. Throw him over there, and the Bible tells us that a great fish swallowed him. That's not bad enough that you're in the water. But then sharks, and this one's just hungry. I don't know if it was a shark. I don't know if it was a whale. I know it was a great fish. 
and this great fish swallowed him whole. And it says that while he was in the belly of this fish, he started to do something a lot of us do when God gets our attention. When God sends storms into our lives, he started to pray. So he's calling out to God. See, he thought when he got thrown into water, it was going to be over with quickly. He's going to drown. God wasn't done with him yet. God heard Jonah's prayer. And the Bible says that that fish bombed him up onto dry land. And now watch this in chapter 3, verse 1. Most powerful words. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You know what God told him the second time? The exact same thing he told him the first time. And you know what? When God comes to you and he speaks to you a second time, you know what he's usually telling you? The exact same thing he told you the first time. You know, I love the whole concept of lessons learned. And and when it came to my dad and it came to um, dealing with Museums that I don't love, for my dad, I was willing to make a sacrifice. I, I, I learned my lesson there. I learned to find value, not in the museum, but in the relationship with my father. You know, Jonah, I think he learned his lesson, sort of. Because he goes and he does what God says, and yet he gets mad at God. And so one of the lessons I think that we can learn from Jonah is this. When it comes to being fearless, we have to ask ourselves and we have to answer the question, what truly has you scared? So when when I think about fear, um, a lot of times uh, I think about the the two most common fears that most people with a pulse experience. And number one is the fear of failure. The, the fear that we won't measure up. I mean, one of the most incredible drivers of human behavior. Moses. He was afraid that he was going to fail when God called him. He said, I can't speak. What if they won't listen to me? And God gave an answer every time. When he approached Gideon, Gideon gave excuses too. I'm from the weakest tribe and I'm the youngest brother. Then God sent him 32,000 men and took away 29,700 of them. You see, the fear of failure, I bet if we would take an inventory of our lives, you can go back and you can remember where there were times where you didn't do something because you were afraid that you were going to fail. You didn't apply for the job because you were afraid that you wouldn't be good at that job. You didn't ask the girl to marry you because you were afraid that they wouldn't want to marry you. And if you're lucky, they'll ask you. See, the fear of failure, it doesn't just affect the people in God's word. It affects the people who are sitting here. 
It affects the people who are watching at home. It affects all of us. But see, it's not just the fear of failure that drives a lot of our decisions. There's another fear that that probably is as strong as the fear of failure, and that's the fear of rejection. And and really what that is at 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 our deepest level, it's the fear of not being loved. It's the greatest desire that God has put in the heart of man and women is for us to be loved. That fear of rejection keeps us paralyzed. It keeps us from taking action. It keeps us from moving out of our comfort zone. Why? Because we're afraid that somebody won't like it, that somebody won't accept it. Matter of fact, I would tell you that as parents, this is the one fear that allows you to be a bad parent because you're afraid your kids will say those words that no parent ever wants to hear. I hate you. And so that you'll never hear those words, we make bad decisions as parents because of that fear of rejection from the people that we love the most. See, it's easier not to ask the question than to ask the question and be told no. I don't know if guys, if you were like this, but in, in uh, junior high and elementary school, I used to, I had this strategy that if I wanted a girlfriend, I would write them a little note and it said, if I asked you to be my girlfriend, would you say yes or no? And then there'd be a Y and an N and they were circle one. And if they circled no, I said, well, I wasn't going to ask you anyways. This is before I was 19 and dumb. I was really dumb when I was nine. But that fear of rejection paralyzes us. That fear of rejection, not only does it paralyze us as parents, but it paralyzes us as Christians. We're afraid to invite somebody to church because if we do, they'll say no. And you don't have that brilliant strategy that I've got where you write them a little card and say, if I invited you to go to church with me, would you say yes or no, circle one? And so instead, you know what we do? We don't do anything. And we just go to church. And we tell ourselves, that's what I'm supposed to do is go to church. And the fear of rejection keeps us from reaching the people around us. But you know, there's another fear. And this is the fear I think that that Jonah experienced, and and it's the fear of success. Now, every time I talk about this topic, everybody looks at me like, are you crazy? Fear of being successful? I mean, if you told me that if I went and applied for that job, I would get the job, uh, sign me up, I'm going. If I sent the email, I'm going to get a confirmation that let me, I'm, I'm there, I'm your man. But the truth of the matter is that there are things that come up in your life and you have an ironclad money back guarantee and you won't take the step because you're afraid of success. See, Jonah was that way. Go back to Jonah in, in chapter 4 and Verse 2, and and this is the word that it says. 
Now watch this. I'll read verse 1. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What in the world could possibly make the guy who just got saved from the belly of a whale angry? You know what made him angry? That God repented, and he wasn't going to destroy the city of Nineveh. And then this is what he says in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord. Have you guys ever prayed to God in, in like prayers you shouldn't pray? And said things to God you shouldn't say? Or is it just Jonah and Ronnie? Are we the only two men who've ever done something stupid like that? You know, you, you know how these prayers go, why God? What were you thinking, Lord? Are you up there? And so Jonah starts having this conversation with God. He says, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? I told you this was going to happen. And what was it that he told him? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God. Man, that's horrible. And I knew you were merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from the disaster. And I knew you were going to let them off, God. See, a lot of times when we hear this story of Jonah, we think that Jonah was scared that he was going to get killed. He wasn't scared. He was a prophet of God. God spoke to him. What he was scared of was that the people that he hated were going to get redeemed. He was afraid that he was going to be successful. And I'm here to tell you that you have the, the Holy Spirit has been talking to you for the last six weeks and you know what you're supposed to do and I've given you enough courage and enough faith to realize that if you'll just take a step out in faith that God will deliver. He'll deliver Daniel from the lion's den. He'll deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace and He will deliver you from kindergarten, from Kids Quest, from youth, He will deliver you from your paralyzed nature and not inviting. You know what amazes me? Is how many people tell me, the Lord was prompting me, the Lord was prompting me, the Lord was prompting me. And I say, what did you do? Nothing. But then there's, there's, there's a weirdo out there every once in a while. And they say, the Lord was prompting me, the Lord was prompting me, the Lord was prompting me. And I say, what did you do? And they say, I invited them to church. And guess what? They're here today. Folks, the God who would deliver Daniel the God who would take care of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God who would instill courage into a coward like Gideon, and the God who would give Jonah a second chance is the same God that is there for you and with you and willing to help you. You've got an ironclad, money-back guarantee. You see, the Bible tells us that he will never leave you nor forsake you. It doesn't say if you, you fill in the blank, if you lie, if you steal, if you cheat. 
that he will leave you and forsake you. Now, now you can cause the Holy Spirit to lose his influence in your life when you do those things, but he'll never forsake you. You heard Rod share it this morning. There is nothing that you can do that'll make God love you any more than he already loves you. And there is nothing that you've ever done or will ever do that will cause God to love you any less. And you see, we have a hard time with that as humans because we don't work that way. That's not the way we operate. And if we were God, we wouldn't do it that way. Well, when you become God, you can make those rules. But until then, let's celebrate this gracious God. Let's celebrate this God who is slow to anger. Let's celebrate this God who is merciful and willing to undo some bad things that are being done. But here's the reality. Here's the danger. There's another Bible verse that I want to read to you, and it's out of Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 1. And Proverbs 29 verse 1 says these words, that he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Now, folks, I will preach grace I will preach mercy. I will preach that God is a God that is slow to anger. Why? Because that's what God's word says. But God's word also says that he won't always strive with man. God's word says here in Proverbs 29 that he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. And I believe that there's people watching online today. I believe that there are people sitting in this worship center And you know that you're getting close. You know that God has reached out to you. God has rebuked you. God has taken you out to the woodshed. God's used a two by four on you. And yet you are still refusing the God of creation. You're still refusing to submit yourself, to bow your knee. And I'm here to tell you that one day, that same God who is loving, that same God who is gracious, that same God who is merciful, that same God one day will break you. And it says that his spirit won't always strive with you. And folks, we want to we wanna try to figure out what does that mean. I don't care what it means. It ain't good. I don't, I don't want to figure that one out. I don't want to know when God's done with me. And here's what I can tell you is that if you're hearing the words that I'm saying, that he's not done yet. He brought you here today to hear this message. Now, I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know where you're running from God and what that conversation looks like. And you know what? I don't need to know because you do. And I'm here to tell you that don't fall prey to what the wisest man that ever walked this earth outside of Jesus Christ says. Because you you can be reproved so many times and then at some point, it's gonna stop.
And at some point, you're going to have to live up to your decisions. Now, I don't know if you remember, but earlier I talked to you about that Drake's equation. Remember that, that big, long, seven different parts to Drake's equation? And, and out of those seven parts, they think they know what three of them are, but four of them, eh, we're guessing. We're just going to be honest. We'd like to, to know, but we're guessing. I don't know if you've ever heard me tell you this, but uh, this book that I hold is actually a collection of 66 different books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents. And here's what's amazing, that this book has made 2,500 predictions. And to date, 2,000 of those 2,500 have come and been fulfilled accurately. Now, the statistics on this say that for that to happen, all right, could you imagine Drake's equation with 2,000 different factors? Not seven. Not seven where you know three maybe and four. Mm -mm. 2,500 and to date, 2,000 of those have come true, 100% accurate. Scientists tell us for that to happen, it's like one and a one to 10 to the, or to the 20. That's a lot of zeros. For you to win the Powerball that's going to happen soon, it's like one to one with six zeros. And most of you realize you don't have a chance, right? And the reality is this, that for men to put together a book like this, that's composed of 66 different books, has 2,500 different predictions, and 2,000 of them to have come accurately true and be proven it's not humanly possible. Doesn't make any sense. And yet, those same scientists that uh, believe in a formula like Drake's equation will laugh at this. They'll laugh at God's word. They'll say it's impossible, that God doesn't exist. And, and you know what I find amazing is that these scientists put so much money and time and effort into trying to find life out there and 2,000 years ago, an extraterrestrial came to this earth. And I want to introduce you to a, a, another equation. It's called the gospel equation. And the gospel equation has four different factors. And number one is this, that all have sinned. Everybody. Some of you are better than others. But the reality is everyone in here, everyone watching, your kids, even the best ones over there, have sinned. And the second component of that gospel equation is that because of sin, the, the price to pay for sin is death. There's, there's, there's no other way. And then the third component is Calvary. You know, the critics don't understand how in the world could we serve a God who would send people to hell. But they, they don't realize that that same God who made the rules, who said that if you sin, you will have to pay for it with your own death, knew that there's no way that we could possibly re reach that standard. And so he himself took on the form of a man, lived a perfect life, and died my sins.
and he died for your sins. And he died for your best child's sins. But see, there's one more component. And here's what's interesting is, on that Drake's uh, equation, if any of those factors is the number zero, the entire formula is void. And so when we look at the gospel equation, it's not any different. Because if any of these reach zero, then it doesn't matter. If it's not true that all have sinned, well, then there's some people that are going to escape by. If it's not true that the penalty for death or the penalty for sin is death, then some people are going to make it through. And if it's not true that Jesus Christ died on the cross, although this is one of the most historically provable events in history. No one argues with that. Well, they'll argue, well, but he wasn't the son of God. Yes, he got killed on a cross. Yes, we, there's a story that he wasn't there three days later. But there's a fourth component. And see, all these things are guaranteed. The Bible tells us that all have sinned. The Bible tells us that the payment for sin is death. And the good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of us. But the fourth component is the one thing that if you're missing, you come up zero, and the whole formula doesn't, it means nothing. And that is the grace. If you don't accept God's grace, you see, God showed grace to Jonah. When Jonah wanted to commit suicide, God had grace on him. God had grace with Gideon. He was coward, and he led him to do something incredible, to defeat an army of a couple of 100,000 with 300. God had grace on Daniel. And it's because God has grace that even if you find yourself paralyzed in fear, that today you can be fearless. Because you're, the, the reason why we can be fearless is our faith. And, and not the amount of our faith, but who our faith is in. Because it's our faith that allows that grace to be applied. And I just want to share this with you folks. Eternity is too long for us to be wrong on this. If you're in here today and you don't know 100% that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior... If you are relying on a decision and you walked up into a church or in a, during VBS when you were a child, and yet there's been no fruit since then, eternity is a long time to get that wrong. God's grace is for you. Maybe you're in here and you've just been struggling in your walk with Christ. It's been a bad year, and it's only February. Twenty twenty one already top in twenty twenty. And I'm here to tell you that God's grace is for you. For you. As bad as you've been this year, God's grace is for you. You didn't surprise God. God's not up in heaven, like oh. you know. I was okay with all those other things, but that right there, that did it. 
He's never said that once. Not once. And he's not going to start. You are not the exception. The question is, are we going to fall on God's grace? Worship team, if you'll come forward. This is why we worship God. Because that same God who put rules in place that we can't possibly live up to, he made a way. He made it possible. He allowed us in our worst state to be redeemed. Will you stand? And if you would, just close your eyes right there. And and I'm just going to ask you one question. One question. How many people here today are in a point in the season in life that you're at right now that you could use a second chance? you raise your hand? Keep your hands up, folks. Let me pray for you. Maybe I titled this message incorrectly when I said being fearless in second chances because what I really, I believe is that it's about being fearless in another chance. Because if you're like me, you're way beyond second. You're way beyond third and fourth. Matter of fact, you're kind of putting to test that whole 70 times seven thing. Keep your hands up high, folks. God, I pray that you would look down and you see these hands. God, you see the hearts that are attached to them. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one and allow them to hear your words, hear your grace, hear your mercy. I pray that they would receive that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's worship. As a church, it's our honor to play a small part in all that God is doing in and through your life, and we would love to continue with you on that journey. You see, it's our mission to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Christ who walk by faith and not by sight.